Well, good morning, church. So thankful for Brian and the band and just the music they're writing uh, to the Lord out of this series that we're doing in the Psalms. And hopefully soon you're going to be able to hear more and more of that. And so just that, that Psalm in Psalm 51 is just going to lead us into this time in the Word. I was so excited to know that uh, on Father's Day I was going to get to to preach here because my dad and my mom go here. And so uh, as I was talking with them, it was going to be good because I was going to be able to say happy Father's Day to my dad, and my dad decided to go to Cincinnati to preach. (laughs) So to replace him to all you dads out there, (laughs) happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to you. Yeah. The role that you play is a tremendous blessing that God has given you. And it's also a heavy burden at times because you are the ones that are to reflect the image of a heavenly father. You're the one that is to to lead in your families that way. And I know at times that can be hard, but I want to just encourage you, keep pursuing it. Keep pursuing the Lord. And as you do, he will mold you so that you reflect that in right ways. And for those of you that had maybe a hard time just with dad or you do right now and that relationship is just strained, I just want you to know we join with you as a church as we pray for redeeming things to come in that relationship. And I want to remind you that you sit in this place, you worship a king that redeems all things, and he has the ability to redeem those relationships. And so we pray for you in that. But really, as we kind of jump into our text today, I want you to know this is a text for all of us, but dads, I want you to pay special attention to it. Because if you do this, there's going to be many generations to come that get it right. And so happy Father's Day to you, all right? As we begin, I want to ask a question, though, and I'm going to ask it to the ladies in here. I know it's Father's Day, but we're going to switch gears for a second. Ladies, I want to ask you, the person that you're dating or the person you're married to, how many of those people that you are with, you would say, are handymen? This is time where you can actually raise your hand, okay? Do we have any of those? Okay. So there's a few. If your spouse did not raise their hand, don't worry about it, men. Um, How many of you maybe had a dad or you have a dad that you would say is a handyman? Okay, good. Now when you think of that title, how many of you are giving that title of a handyman to that person because they know how to use something like this? Yes, for some reason, we can say that we're uh, a handy person when we know how to unroll duct tape. I'm not a handyman. In fact, I mess a lot of things up. Just recently, I had to put a new basketball hoop in our driveway, and so I got all the the equipment, and I got the, the things that we needed, and 
I started putting this concrete into the hole and like halfway in realized we didn't have enough bags of concrete and it's like, honey, you have 10 minutes to get to Menards and back. <laughs> and so we're doing all this and it was the most stressful thing in the world. I was freaking out. I didn't know quite what to do and I'm doing all this and the reason I was freaking out of two reasons because I'm not a handyman and the second one is my father-in-law was going to show up at some point. And my father-in-law is a handyman. My father-in-law is an artist when it comes to bricklaying and to using concrete. And I knew at some point he's going to show up and he's going to see my work. <laughs> and it was, it was nerve-wracking, but the, the fact is, is that we all in here want to be handy. We want to know how to fix things. We want to know how to put things back together. We want to repair things. And for many of us, we want to repair the souls and the hearts of our, our wounded child. We want to bring healing, or, or maybe it's that for some of us men in here, whenever we see our spouse or the, our significant other, that, that when they're hurting we, or going through something, we think we can fix it. And so we have all these things where maybe we just look into our own lives and we look at our own lives and we have this thought that we can fix it. And all that we tend to do is we either tend to make it worse or break it or we just apply strips of duct tape to the wounds and to the painful experiences and to the mistakes that we make over and over again. See, all of us in here, we come into this place with something in common, and it's that we have this hole, this, this thing that we need repaired, this, this thing that we need to be transformed. We need our hearts to be put back together, and the reality is, is that none of us in here have the capacity to fix it. But we try. We try over and over and over again but the problem is, is that the destruction of sin is on each one of us and we are born with it and we come into this world with it. And so we have this need, we have this tremendous need to be rescued and restored from it. And the issue is, for each of us in here today, is are we craving that rescue? I mean, think about how you crave things. Are you craving that rescue or that, that restoration or are you only seeking things where you pull off the duct tape and you repair it for it to only last another week, another couple days? I want you to know, and I want to be totally honest with you, that you're never going to make it work if you're trying to restore the sinfulness in your own life. See, this psalm, this psalm that we're going to be looking at, Psalm 51 this morning, here in this place, is a psalm that, that is beautiful, that it's honest, that it's hard, that it's filthy, that it's destructive, but it is the most beautiful, redemptive piece of Scripture. It is beautiful, and it's written in that way because it's a story 
It's the story of David. It's the story of you and I. It's, it's the story of what is going on in our life. And my prayer for us this morning, for you and for myself, is that as we open up his word, as we open up the scriptures, that we would let Psalm 51 take action in our life. And that the reality that, that what we crave determines the presence we dwell in would make an impact on our life. What we crave determines the presence we dwell in. See, Psalm 51 tells this story of moving from deadly cravings, these deadly, awful sins, to this redemptive presence. And it, it, it streams through this, and it tells the story of King David and it's connected to another portion of scripture, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And for some of us in here, we might know this story, but I want to give you a little background before we jump into Psalm 51. 2 Samuel 11 and 12 tells the story of David in the spring of that year when kings would usually go out and they would go to battle with all of their men. David chooses not to. So he sends his men out. He's back in his palace. And one night, David is walking on the roof of his palace that oversees the entire city of Jerusalem. It had to be an incredible sight as he looked out over the people that he ruled. Maybe the, the thought of the power that he was given as king was going through his mind, but he's walking, and as he's walking and looking out, he sees a woman bathing. Now this is the moment that David should have walked away. He should have turned. He should have been thinking about his men. He should have been thinking about what God had done in his life, what God had put in his life, how God dropped him in that place and blessed him. And instead, David is focused on Bathsheba. And so he inquires about her and invites her to the palace that night and she comes. And the text doesn't say whether or not they had dinner or, or there was entertainment or anything. But what the text does tell us is that at some point that night, David sleeps with her. And what the text also tells us is that Bathsheba was the wife of another man. And so David... David is king, and he knows that he can get whatever he wants, that he has this power. And David has this craving, and he knew better, and yet he still slept with her anyway. And that's, that's bad enough, but sometime later, David gets a note from Bathsheba, and it basically simply says, I'm pregnant. And in that moment, David feels this overwhelming, oh no, my sin, the thing that I have done, this wrong thing is now going to be made known. And David does what all of us in here, all of us do. We try to cover up. We, tie to, we try to take these strips and put it on so that people don't see the honesty and the depth of destruction that's within us. And so he's trying to think, what do I do now? And so he invites the husband back who is out at battle where he should be, he invites the husband back thinking that Bathsheba's husband will, will go to her, sleep with her, and no one will ever know. And he doesn't do it. So David ends up 
deciding I'm going to send him to the front lines and surely he will be killed there. And when he's killed, I will take Bathsheba as my own wife. And then this nation will see that I am a compassionate king, that I have a good heart, and he will cover it up. No one will ever know. And sure enough, the husband goes and he's killed. And David does just that, but the problem is, is that God knows. Just like he knows what's going on in you. And so God sends his prophet Nathan to David and David and Nathan tells him David God knows of your sin and God is angry Now 2 Samuel 11:12 don't tell us what goes on within David's heart but Psalm 51 does See Psalm 51 is this agony that that we get to and and what it reveals is that what you crave determines the presence you dwell in. What you crave. And so if you have your copy of the scriptures or if you need to grab a Bible in front of you, I want you to turn to Psalm 51 as we see this story unfold and the truth that really we must apply to our own lives. Psalm 51, it starts by saying this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict, and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And I want to pause there. David is coming clean. He's coming clean here. He's being very public on what's going on in his life. And what he's doing is he's calling on God to do some things. He's calling on God here on his character He's saying, this is who you are, God. This is who you have been, who you are right now, and who you will always reflect, what you will always do. This is who God is, and what he is saying is true today. This is who God is. He is a God of unfailing love. He's a God of great compassion. He is the righteous judge. He is the restorer, and he is the redeemer. And David knows it, he's pleading. And so as we look through this, we're going to see four things that David does. The first thing is this, is that David's calling on God to fully remove the guilt of his sin. Remove it. He's pleading for that here in these first five verses. See, David's describing who God is, but he's also describing himself. And in that, he's saying that this is my true confession. This is is something I'm coming to you. I'm not giving you any excuses, God. This is what I have done. And he is revealing the distance between himself and the holy God. And he's saying, this is what I need. I need your character and who you are to come and deal with my rebellion, my sin. Many years ago in the London Times, there was an editor that was writing for that paper. And he, he wrote 
one editorial that was kind of had this question, what is wrong with the world? And so he did some research, he was studying, and he came to some conclusions, and he was writing on the moral and social issues that were destroying the world. And as he was doing that, he asked his readers to write in and share some of the thoughts that they have and the the answers that they have to this question of what is wrong with the world. The best letter that this editor got said this, Dear Editor, what's wrong with the world? I am faithfully yours, G.K. Chesterton. I am. Incredible leader. Realizing that he's what's wrong. And that's what David's showing us right now. He's saying, I am what's wrong with this world. If you don't have the book, New Morning Mercies by Paul Tripp, I want to encourage you to get it. In fact, I encourage you to sell out the bookstore today. In that, Paul Tripp writes some incredible devotionals for each day, but in it he says this, you and I struggle with the faithfulness of God, not because he has been unfaithful, but because we have. See, what we see is that David's saying, you are the faithful God. And he's struggling in that moment. He's saying, this is what's happened. This is what's taking place. You have been faithful, but I have not. This is a confession. David's confession is a plea to the faithful character of the righteous judge because he understands that he has committed great rebellion. And he also understands that what you crave determines the presence you dwell in. What you crave determines the presence you dwell in. And so as David is dealing with this, he writes on, in verse six, he says this, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So David's going deeper now. In these verses, he's he's diving deeper into how his sin And his actions have have impacted this relationship, this connection with the God of holiness. And he knows that that he needs cleansing. So not only is David calling on God to remove the guilt, now David is calling on God to purify him so that he can return to praise. He's saying, come purify Purify me. I want to praise you. Purify me. So when we, when we look at this, we have to understand that even though 2 Samuel 11 and 12 aren't telling us this, Psalm 51 is telling us that David is agonized with the sin that's in his life. He is agonizing over what he has done, what has taken place. 
When was the last time you agonized? When was the last time that you realized that the sin that you have that's welling up within you has driven this wedge in the connection between you and God? See, that's what David is is recognizing here and what what he's seeing here. He knows his heart is wrong before the Creator. And he uses some incredible language. You notice he, he references this whenever he's, he's looking at this in verse 7. He says, cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop was this plant that they used, that the priests would use, and they would dip it, and then they would sprinkle it over lepers. Lepers who were cast out of society, couldn't stay with their families, and they had their own community outside the walls of the city because they didn't want it to, to get to anybody else. And the priests would use this hyssop and they would do this in the purification process of lepers. The reason for it is because lepers, they, they dwelled in death. Death was always around them. They always saw it. They would wake up, not only recognizing it on themselves, but in every person around them. They were dwelling in death. And what David is saying is, My sin has put me in death's chamber. It has brought me to this place where I'm dealing with this and I need a purification process that I can't do because the most I can do is put these strips of useless cloth on me, these strips that can't fix anything. And I need you, God, the God of unfailing love. See, we do something in this world, and it sounds so good. But whenever you uh, see, uh, uh, maybe it's a, a famous athlete or a television star or even a leader, and they're talking to children, they'll often use language that continue working hard. Just continue working hard. Dream big enough. Practice a lot. And you're going to be able to accomplish the dreams of your heart, the desires of your heart. You're going to be able to accomplish it. I bought into that. I bought into that thinking I was going to be the next Michael Jordan. Just so you know, it didn't happen. Because here's the deal. It's right to work hard. It is right to practice a lot. It is right to have big dreams. But you have been born into a sinful world. You have been born into a place that is falling apart. And you have been born into a place that has drastically different wills. And so because of that, we need rescuing. We need it because we are what's wrong. There's this incredibly brilliant mind of our day that said this. Sin is a matter of your heart before it's a matter of your behavior. David is showing this, that it's his heart that has the issue. It's his heart that needs purification. 
Now, this incredible mind that said this also had something else to say on this psalm, Psalm 51. Look at this clip. Transformation. Those of you that are interested in change theory, change in the Bible is always a function of looking away from yourself to another, Jesus Christ. And what I love about the way David slips from verse 4 to verse 10 in Psalm 51 is David ends up praying, oh God, create in me a clean heart. And he's taking the eyes off himself, off his tragedy, off his sin, off his adultery and murder, and he's fixing his eyes on Jesus. Okay, let's just get out of the way. I am kissing up. Okay? <laughs> now, here's the deal. That's true. What David's showing us here is that change can only happen when he looks away from what he is, who he is, what he has done, and into the face of a redemptive God. And so for you and me this morning, it means taking your eyes off of yourself, taking your eyes off of trying to think you can fix the things that are happening in your life, the sin that you can just will it out of your life and placing it on the face of the cross where the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ went, where he took your sin, your shame, your guilt, and he put it on his shoulders and he did it sacrificially so that you and I could end up dwelling in the presence of his Father. See, that's why things need to change, and we need to change our perspective, because what you crave determines the presence you dwell in. And to crave the presence of God begins and ends with the gospel of grace. It begins and ends with there. I mean, the gospel of grace is exactly what Psalm 51 is all about. It's, it's Jesus pouring his grace and his mercy out on us today. And so you don't come in here just to sing and to listen. You come in here and you open your heart and mind to say, Lord, whatever you want to do, because I desire your presence. And so David goes on then in the psalm in verse 11. He says this, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So David's asked for the removal of the guilt. He's, he's asking for this purification. And now what we see is that David's calling on God to remove guilt so he can dwell in his presence. He wants to dwell in his presence. David is leading us in the psalm to see how we're clearly living. So let me, let me ask you this. What are you craving? What is it that you're craving in your life, that, that sinful, distorted object? Why are you craving it? As you're walking on the roof, peering down, what is it that you have to flee from and turn from? 
How are you confessing those cravings to God? Because what's happening is for all of us in here, we're wrestling with whether we're craving the sin or craving the thought that we can fix it or we crave the redemptive restoration that the cross brings. So what are you craving? Men, what are you craving in your life that is distorting your perspective of who God is? Women, what are you craving that is taking your eyes off the Heavenly Father? And this morning, you have to do business with him. You have to declare what it is because what David is showing us is that we have to be honest with what those things are and bring those to the foot of the cross. See, at the cross, and what these verses are doing is they're just taking us, they're pointing us to the cross. This is what's coming for David. This is, he knows that there's a purification process that's coming that's known as the cross. And so all this is happening. And through the work of the cross, Jesus' face is turned toward you, even in your sin. He's facing you. He's looking at you with that unfailing love. The problem is, is we sometimes fear that presence. We fear it, and that's why we turn to these things. We fear that presence because we know it could radically change us, and it could radically do some things that we're just unsure of. I referenced him earlier, but Paul Tripp goes on to say this. He sent his his holy son to enter the world and suffer because of sin's mess. He sent him to live the perfect life that we would never live, to sacrifice himself on account of our sin and to defeat the death that is sin's doom. It is an agenda of awesome grace extended to lost, rebellious, and self-excusing people who even need that grace to understand how much they need that grace. I love that last line. It's extending grace to those that we just even don't even fully understand the grace that we need. David's taking us there in this psalm. He is taking us there because what he's understanding is that what you crave determines the presence you will dwell in and to crave the presence of God begins and ends with the gospel of grace. It begins and ends there. So what are you craving? What is the thing that you are craving and are you craving the presence of God? Is that what you are yearning for in your life? So I plead with you to crave the Lord and bring the mess of your sin to him and to him alone. David then goes on in verse 13. He says this, Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. So we see that 
David is asking for this, you know, removal of guilt, this purification, wanting to dwell in his presence. And then what we see here is David is calling on God to remove his guilt so that he can teach and praise. So that he can teach and praise. And so what we see is that from the mouth of a sinner to sinners, he's saying, here's my sin. This is what has taken place. This is what I have done. I've confessed. And now, Lord, renew my heart, purify my heart so I can teach others so that we can praise you for the work that you do. This should make us realize that we don't come into this place on Sundays to go through the motions. You don't stand to sing just because you're told to. You stand to praise because of what God has done on the cross and what he continues to do in your life. And we do it with a broken heart, knowing we're a mess and we need his redeeming work. Because Psalm 51 is is teaching us this, that we have to get control of our cravings because what we crave determines the presence that you dwell in. And to crave the presence of God begins and ends with the gospel of grace. There's a book that Tim Shriver wrote called Fully Alive, Discovering What Matters Most. He works with the Special Olympics and he tells this story. July 1st, 1995, in New Haven, Connecticut at the Yale Bowl, the opening ceremonies to the Special Olympics were happening. On another field, a helicopter landed and President Bill Clinton and Hillary got off and they were going into the ceremony and President Clinton was going to give the opening address. The athletes are ushered in and they're dwelling in a place where all their peers are like them with the same disabilities. And as they go in, they're given disposable cameras so that every athlete can take these pictures and and create these memories of the experience that they're having. So they, they get in, and on the stage, the stage that's elevated above all the athletes is President Clinton. He's giving his opening remarks and and he's talking and one of the professional photographers that was down on the field with all the athletes saw a group of African athletes holding these disposable cameras. The only problem is they were holding them backwards and holding them up. And out of concern for them and wanting to make sure that they didn't have all these blurry pictures of their face, he goes up and he starts talking to them. You want to get a picture of President Clinton. And they don't respond. So thinking that they don't speak English, he continues on in English. And he says, you, you want, yes, you want to get a, a, a picture of President Clinton. Let me, let me help you. And he takes the camera and he turns it around so it's facing the right way and shows him to look through the viewfinder that way and, and says, there, now you can get a picture of President Clinton. And one of the athletes says to him, thank you, sir. Thank you so much. But that's not what we're trying to do. See, if you take the camera and you flip it around and look through the viewfinder, it brings President Clinton closer. And we can be closer to this experience. Now, for many of us, we want to keep the camera the normal way because we think this is all we need. 
But it's time for us to flip it around and have our view clearly on the cross of Christ and what the work that Jesus did there so that your life, my life, can be purified and we can come before a holy God and worship in his presence. Because what you crave determines the presence you will dwell in. And to crave the presence of God begins and ends with the gospel of grace. And for those of us that claim relationship with him, we have to passionately hold on to that. And for those of us that don't have a relationship with him, this morning, I want to ask you to consider the mess that's in my life, the mess that's in all of our lives. I can't do it anymore. I've got to take it to the cross. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for this word. I thank you for what you did in David's life and that as one sinner speaking to many sinners, he came to reveal what you do and how you bring cleansing. May we cling to your gospel of grace. May we crave your presence above all sin, all objects, may we sit at your feet and may we worship you. So in these moments, Lord, may we confess and may we praise as we give you this praise here now. May it put a smile on your face. It's your name I pray, amen.